There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Please be aware that this episode contains stories of abuse and reconciliation. Their stories are their own and aren't intended to be prescriptive. I'm Leslie Feist. Welcome to Pleasure Studies, a song-by-song look at the themes underpinning our lives. Each episode holds up multiple stories to one light to get a glimpse at the common ground that's under our common struggles. We love the people that hurt us. Steve was terrible towards me. But I don't believe that he was a bad person. The way she talks about it is, you know, rape was something that happens in the movies with a, an unknown stranger, a, you know, a knife-wielding offender and attacker who jumps at you from the bushes. She, I think, didn't want to identify that someone who she trusted, one of her first relationships, could hurt her like that. Leaving was the hardest decision of my life because I knew I would never get to see my family, my sisters, my brothers, or talk to them ever again. I would never get to say goodbye or let them hear how it really was. I wish someone could have privately come up to me and just said, Atia, I'm really sorry for what you're going through. I've seen the bruises on you, and I know that there's something going on. And I just want to let you know that I care for you. You know, I care for you, or I love you, and I'm here for you. My girlfriend thought this was 16 years old. That was one of her first intimate relationships, and this was a severe abuse of her safety and her ability to feel comfortable within herself. And I know this echoed through, you know, for years and in terms of her coming to terms with it and, and dealing with it and surviving and, and maintaining. My mom was the second wife of Warren Jeffs and growing up till I was about 14, we had around eight mothers. They all had children. So I grew up with about 25 children. We slept with our half-sisters the same age as us. That's why it just felt like we were all just one big happy family, I guess. I thought that I was as happy as any child could ever be. I met Steve over, it's been almost 25 years. I was going to a Depeche Mode concert uh, with my friend Zana. We were 16 and we got ready and we went early in the day and we were going to be there all day and wait because we wanted to be first in line um, so that we could run to the stage and be right at the front to watch Depeche Mode. The concert got canceled. We were devastated. We started to walk away and we're going through the parking lot in Ottawa. And as we were walking, 
we saw Steve coming towards us with some friends, but we didn't know it was Steve. I looked at him and I was like, it's Martin Gore from Depeche Mode. We ran up to him and I was like, hi, uh, I'm Atiyah. This is my friend Zana. Can we get your autograph? And he just stood there and he's like, my name's Steve. We spent the whole afternoon, the whole evening and the whole night together. We stayed up all night. Uh, and I kind of fell in love with him instantly. I was at uh, my school in Reykjavik. It was coming into winter. I was not doing so well in the subjects. I was falling asleep in class. Um, one of my teachers said, look, you need to, I suggest you stay busy and get involved in something that, that maybe is a bit more social and a bit more interactive. And, and he suggested I join the school play. And I remember the first rehearsal. So I just was, was there and I have this memory of her jumping down from one of the stages wearing this red sweater. There was a party for all the people in the play. I got chatting to Thurtis and I guess that was the origin of a pretty typical teenage relationship. We met there and we were dating for around about a month. That was in 96 and I was 18 years old and Thurtis was 16 years old. You know, I was 16. We were teenagers. It was pretty exciting. He left the next day. And we ended up talking on the phone every day for about a month. Then he moved to Ottawa into my family home. He moved because he wanted to be with me. And I told my mom that he was coming. And she said, I'm, I come from a big family. I have 10 siblings. I have four biological brothers and six adopted siblings. So we were a full house. She said, uh, that's fine. And he can come and stay with us. So Steve came, he, we lived in my mom's, my family home for less than two months, and then she asked us to leave. My father's father, Raylan Jeffs, was the prophet and the leader of the church. People looked up to my father as quite a great and good man because he was close to his father. While I was a child, he became the first counselor to my grandfather, who was the prophet or leader. And so everyone looked up to him very highly. He was a very great orator. He knew how to expound on the church teachings in a way that, that no one else could. He was untouchable, basically. Uh, the abuse started early on. From what I remember, it was within the first month uh, he had hit me. I didn't tell anyone. And when he first hit me, I was very, very confused. He, after he did it, he was incredibly ashamed. He was very apologetic. I remember him crying and he said, it will never happen again. These are the words that a lot of people who are in abusive situations hear after they've been hurt. I believed him and I wanted to believe him and I wanted to be with him. Uh, but the violence continued, and it never stopped until I escaped from him two years later. Because we were so taught about keeping our bodies covered and not to think of boys and not to look at boys, when I turned eight and my father suddenly introduced me to how he looked as a, a male one day when he had me in his office and 
He exposed his genitals to me. I just remember I was so shocked. I wanted to cry. I didn't really know what to think or I, I wondered what he was doing. And, you know, naturally the first thing in my mind is this is wrong. And at the same time, this was my father. It was like a big puzzle to me. I didn't understand what he was trying to do in making me touch him and trying to supposedly teach me how a man's body worked. Still, I mean, it's just it's really emotional. I didn't understand what he was trying to do. And, you know, it happened throughout my life till I was 16. And I didn't really understand how to put it together in my mind because he was supposedly a good priesthood man that supported the prophet and was high up in the church. It was December 17th, 1996, what's called the Yolabal Christmas Ball, which is a big affair for every high school in, in Reykjavik in Iceland. Yeah, I remember arriving at the ball. I remember standing outside and seeing Ferdis and her friend come towards me. Ferdis, I recall, was laughing and, and giggling and and I hadn't seen her like that before. I guess I assumed that she'd been drinking because she was kind of boisterous. And the next thing I recall was a big, shifting, sweaty dance floor. And, and then I got a tap on the shoulder and I was told that Ferdis was in the bathrooms and that she was sick. I, perhaps pretty brazenly, went into the women's bathrooms climbed in one of the cubicles and she was being sick in the toilet. Held the hair out of her face while she was not well. And when I noticed that she wasn't getting better and was still really unwell, I thought the night's over. This is where I just need to take her home. Carried her upstairs. One of the security guards said, you know, do you need help? Does she need an ambulance? And I fobbed him off and said, no, 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 I'm her boyfriend. I'll take her back home. I'll get a taxi. I know where she lives and she'll be okay. I went back to her place, carried her inside, and when I got her inside, I took her clothes off, and I put her in bed, and that's where I made some horrible, horrible black decisions. On Halloween, we were really excited, and we were actually going out with a group of friends. And so we were dressed up as clowns, I remember doing an inventory of my behavior almost like I didn't want to seem too happy or too excited because I thought that Steve would be angry with that. So I was trying to monitor my happiness, my behavior, and I was trying to just stick with the few women that I was with and talk to them. But I kept having some of our male friends come up to me and we were just chatting, but I was hyper aware that this um, would piss Steve off. And it did. I remember him grabbing me um, just by the arm and pulling me in and saying, you better stop fucking talking to him. And in that instant, I knew this night was not going to be fun anymore. This one friend of mine came back and started talking to me. And I remember looking at him like I had to somehow find words that would just make him walk away. Before I knew it, Steve had grabbed me and he was pulling me to the side and it was sort of an industrial area and he pulled me to the side between two buildings. I remember being against a brick wall and he just punched me in the face. In that moment, I wasn't concerned for myself. I wasn't necessarily like, oh, you know, Steve's punched me out in public. This is like a big deal. It wasn't because I'd been 
hurt a lot. What bothered me is that we might be inconveniencing our friends and that we were taking this time out that was preventing us from getting to the club. And I remember looking over to the side and I could see them. And the friend that I was talking to, he came up and he was like, whoa, what's going on here? Steve, you can't do that. And I looked at him and I was like, please, please just leave us alone. I'm fine. I'm totally fine. He's like, how can you be fine? He just hit you. I was like, Exactly. Like, he just hit me. He just hit me once. My whole life was in father's hands. Who I married, what became of me, it was all in his hands. And so I did not want to displease him by telling anyone because he would hold that over my head and I would not get as good of things in life if I told anybody about what he was doing. So I did not dare tell anybody. Even my sisters, I didn't dare tell and clear until I was 16. When I was 16, I felt like I had the power to face him alone after he attempted once again to involve me sexually. I wrote him a letter and I just gave the letter directly to him under, I mean, I put it in his room and that's when he finally faced me and was like, oh, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. A couple of days later, I. I broke up the relationship on the basis that I questioned my feelings towards sort of just, it would be fair to say subconsciously that I was also running from what I did, albeit there was no recognition. I certainly didn't have the word rape in my mind, nor did I was moving anywhere close to recognising what I'd done as, as rape or, or, or understanding anywhere near the impact or the magnitude of the hurt that I'd caused. When I turned 18, not just a couple months afterwards, my father came home and he told me and Becky that we were getting married tomorrow. He would just surprise us who we were marrying. Well, after a couple hours, I went back to father and I said, Father, I have to know who I'm marrying so I can prepare my mind for it. And so then he just said, Rachel, you're marrying Richard Allred and Becky, you're marrying David Allred. And they were both younger. My husband was 25 and hers was like 28 or 29. I mean, we could have married a 70-year-old. So I was glad. My husband had two other wives already. I was, I was very scared, but I just remember thinking, well, at least it's a young man. I didn't think that I was worthy of someone loving me or caring for me. I didn't believe that that could even happen. I believed that I was not worth loving. I tried to get back with her. I asked her to take me back. And this is, this is a measure of how I categorically misidentified that night as being sex. I thought this, here she was coping with the, the physical and the emotional trauma that I'd put her through in the days afterwards. And I was start up our relationship again and, yeah. By the time I married my husband, my father became the leader of the church. I was his third wife. He got two more after me, so he had five wives. I had five children with Richard. He had 22 between all of us wives. So life, even together as family and Richard's family, became a lot stricter because of my father. But the kids, they did not get to have toys. We were taught that our children had to work. 
it became really strict on what we had to feed them. There were so many restrictions. I think it helped our family bond together better than we would have otherwise. Life just became a lot harder, mostly because of the church. It was months later that she understood as what happened to her as, as rape. I had been bumping into Steve since I had escaped from him every few years uh, on the streets in Toronto. The first time I saw Steve, we passed each other by, we made eye contact, and then I nearly fainted. And I ended up having nightmares for months, panic attacks. I was scared to leave the house. My insomnia kicked in. I had all these symptoms of trauma. And then I bumped into him again two years after that. And then I bumped into him again. And slowly what happened is it went from not saying anything to just saying, hey, Steve, how are you? The only thing that kept me there was my love for my family and knowing that if I left, my family would consider me the worst person ever and would never talk to me again. And it was hard. I felt very alone. I felt like I was on an island because I felt like I was the only one. I'm the only one that knows what father really is, that knows how bad he is. But I can't tell anybody. And I wanted at least one person to understand. I did tell my husband and he faced my father about the sexual abuse. But father just quickly shut him up. And my husband told me later, Rachel, don't tell me anymore because I don't want to question my testimony of the prophet, which was my father. After the 10-year mark, uh, I had finished university. I was in a college program. I had a good relationship. I had a good, um, lovely place to live. I was doing better. I saw Steve, and for the first time, I looked at him as not the person who had hurt me. And I realized that he was suffering. He didn't look good. And I thought, I wonder if the abuse has affected his life. There's no way that you could hurt someone so bad and not have that live inside your brain. In 2005, I thought you sent me an email and I was at work. I remember I froze seeing her name. I didn't know what she was writing to me about. I was, I was kind of petrified. You know, I opened up the email and it was a description of that night in 1996. It was a chronology of what she'd experienced and what I did. And she said that this is a past that we need to, that we need to reconcile, that can't rule our futures. And she spoke about forgiveness, but she spoke about moving forward. It was finding a way to talk about it. This had been something that she'd been battling with for years and that I was in denial of, and it was uh, an invite to sit down and, and analyse that night and come to terms with it. I wrote back to her a few days later and said, basically, I hear you, I have flashes of that night, I believe you, and you know, where do you want to go from here? What, what do you need? And that started eight years of, of an email correspondence. With life being that hard, it just became very evident to me that there's no way I can stay here and submit to this, have my kids suffer through this. I don't want my daughters to get married at 12. And then one day, I, I actually saw my sister Angela 
accidentally and we traded phone numbers. We weren't supposed to, but we did secretly. And then several months later, she called me and she said, Rachel, you know what father did to you when you were younger? And I just sat there quietly because I had never told her. Angela's like, Rachel, I know you know what I'm talking about. And I said, how do you know? And she said, because he did it to me too. And I can't explain the relief and the pain that I felt at all at once at that moment. Pain that he would do that to my little sister. And yet the relief that someone really understood me because they went through the exact same experience. I just started crying. <laughs> it felt so good to know that somebody believed me and understood me. And that was the night that we both decided that we would leave the church and that we could never stay there because we could never trust our father. I did not expect Steve to show up. I didn't expect for me to heal through the process. I didn't expect Steve to continue to participate. I didn't expect to get any clear answers. And I think there was a part of me that knew that what I needed was to be able to ask him questions. And I went there. I had a list of questions, and I asked every single one of them. She said that she wanted to basically work through this with me. And that was, that was a big part of me being able to move towards that conversation because of the way she asked me to have it. This was something that she needed, but also I needed to confront. And it was something that we could, we could work through. It wasn't about punishment or revenge or, or anything like that. And there was, I guess, a bit of a hopefulness around where this was going and the fact that it could provide healing and that it could also provide something that would set us free from the past. I've never seen my husband since. He's never tried to talk to his kids or help take care of them. I very much miss my family. I've tried very hard to contact my sisters and brothers. In fact, I, I, I once was able to get a hold of one of my full brother's numbers, and I called him, and like hi and he's like hello and I says I just, like, I just wanted to tell you that they're moving mother's grave you know I just was trying to find something to say to him I knew he's going to hang up when he found out it was me he was just like is this Rachel and I says yep it is and he hung up the phone immediately and you know that's the kind of rejection because I have left the church they feel like they cannot talk to me you know it's very painful and it's easier to just stay away from it. But you know, eventually, as some of my family has left, they always find me, even some of father's wives. That's so rewarding to me because I know I've always been there for them and I love them so much. I know once it gets bad enough for them that they will come find me, hopefully. There were times when I felt guilty. Uh... I felt guilty for giving Steve a chance to sit down with me and have this conversation. My guilt came from the outside world, though. I thought 
People would be angry at me for sitting down with him. I thought people would think that I was letting him off, that I was providing excuses for the violence that he was using. And I did. I had a, I had a, a huge sense of guilt about that, which was really, really hard. I felt guilty because I got to a point where, um, I, do, where I did and I do care about him. I care for him as a human being. I hope that good things happen to him. And sometimes when I say that, I still feel guilty about that because there's this outside pressure that he doesn't deserve for me to feel that for him. I'm Atia Khan. I'm a survivor of domestic violence. I'm a counselor and advocate. Uh, I work specifically with women and children who experience domestic violence and, um, and for children who witness it. And I'm the co-director and writer of a documentary called A Better Man. My name is Rachel Jeffs. I grew up in the FLDS cult. My father was Warren Jeffs, who is their leader at this time. I wasn't able to leave until 2015. I am I'm so happy to be outside of that cult. I'm so happy to see my children become educated in school and have friends and live a normal life. I'm so glad that they can have the choice to become whatever they want to become. And I don't want people to think that I feel bad for what I went to. I feel like that helped me become strong and I'm grateful for the experience because now I can help other people not go through that. Hi, my name's Tom Stranger. I work with people in drug and alcohol and crisis accommodation. I'm a husband and a son and someone who loves the outdoors. I was once in a relationship when I raped my then girlfriend and this is something that I've wanted to join with her in talking about publicly and discussing in the hope that it will add something to prevention and also stop our histories being repeated. I Wish I Didn't Miss You was produced by Ravi Lakritz. Special thanks to Rachel Jeffs, Atia Khan, and Tom Stranger for telling us their stories. Score by Todd Dahlhoff, and the theme is played by Tony Shear. Pleasure Studies is executive produced by Robbie Lackritz and myself, Leslie Feist. Additional contributions from Andrew Whiteman and Elizabeth Barker, and is presented by Erios and Talkhouse.